church and newcomers, we want to be a place, we want to be a church where people come and they feel like they've come home. And so that's why we've got these name tags on. Uh, that's why we want to meet you. Uh, and that's why we want to shake each other's hand and learn each other's names. We want to be a community that's characterized by love for one another. So I'm, I'm really glad that you're here this morning. Let me pray as we open the word. I, I hope you have a, a Bible. If you don't, there are Bibles in the back that you can grab. Also, we have, uh, you have an app that you can get for free online. But also, the words will be up on the screen if you'd like to follow. Let me pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the worship that we just had in, in song and for the wonderful and deep words that were in those songs. And Lord, they're so delightful and so wonderful because they come from your word and because they are true. And Lord, I pray that even as I speak now, that these things that I say will ring true because they are from your word. Lord, would your Holy Spirit work in the hearts and minds of people who are here? Would you allow us to trust you? Would you open our minds to what you have to say in Christ's name? Amen. We are continuing our series designed to thrive, and if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you've learned many different ways that God wants you to thrive. And if you've missed a week or two, it's online, and you can check out our media section on our page, and you can, and you can check it out. Uh, but you might have gotten the wrong impression if this is all that you've heard from a preacher if, if you've come for only the last four or five weeks. You might get the impression that we at Richview think that the reason why God is here, the reason why God exists, is to make sure you thrive. Now, God loves us. God loves us. He, he wants what's best for us, and he does supply to our needs. But is that the end of God? Is that God's purpose, just to make sure that you and I thrive? Or is there something even deeper going on? This morning, the sermon is called Designed for a Purpose. And in this case, we're talking about salvation. Salvation is designed for a purpose. Why are we saved? Why is God good to us? Why does he allow us to thrive? What's the point? Does God just revolve around me and my needs? Or is there something deeper going on when God saves us, when God allows us to thrive, when God blesses us? Is there something more that God wants to accomplish through us? And I'm going to show you through the word that there is something deeper going on. And what we're going to do is we're going to open to Isaiah chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 12. Again, you don't want to hear uh, my opinion. You want to hear from the Word. And so it's so important that you know that this is coming from the Word. If you could back up a slide there, um, Cameron. Uh, Isaiah chapter 12, it, it's, it's a really important uh, passage. It follows a chapter, uh, Isaiah chapter 11. And it's an incredible passage because... It was written hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene. Hundreds of years before Jesus arrived as a baby. Now, scholars dispute exactly which century, but all of them agree that it was long before Christ came on the scene. And what Isaiah chapter 11 does is describe a future Messiah. It describes this person who will come from the lineage of Jewish kings. This person, this Messiah, this Savior who will gather all of God's people. Who will bring perfect righteousness and perfect justice to the earth. And it was looking forward. It doesn't say Jesus by name, but it describes Jesus. And that's just a miraculous thing. And then the chapter after Isaiah 11, Isaiah 12 is what we're looking at this morning, talks about what it will be like once that Messiah has done his work. Now, you and I, 
we live after Jesus has done his work. And so we don't need to imagine. When we're reading this passage, we're not looking forward to the future. We're looking at how it is right now. Jesus has gone to the cross and done the work of the Messiah for our sakes. And so what happens in Isaiah 12 is actually a description of what we're experiencing now. And what we're going to see in this passage is three things. One, the source of salvation, why we need it and how we get it. Second, we're going to see the result of salvation. And finally, we're going to see the purpose for salvation. Why does God save us anyway? So the first thing we're going to see, the source of salvation. Why do we need it and how do we get it? Isaiah chapter 12, verse 1 says this. In that day you will say. Now, now what's that day? What's the day that they're talking about? Well, it's that future day when the Messiah has done his work, right? This was written hundreds of years before Christ. It's looking to the future as in now. So in that day, in the future, when the Messiah has done his work, you will say, the believers will say, I will praise you, Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself, is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Now, I, I want to ask you a question. That, uh, the answer is, is in this text, but here's, here's the question I'll ask you, and you can try and think of your own answer. What is the greatest threat against all humanity? What's the greatest existential threat against all of us individually and all of us corporately? What, what do you think? Now, in your mind, you, you don't have to say it out loud, you can think it. Um, but some of you might be thinking it's nuclear annihilation. That's the biggest threat facing all of humanity. You could argue that. Some people might say, well, it's global warming. Global warming, we're going to tear this world apart with uh, how we're polluting it, and it's going to result in a catastrophe. And that's the biggest threat. Some of you might say it's a political threat. Some of you uh, might say that it's a technological threat. Whatever it is, you could argue all of these things. But you know what the Bible says? The Bible says the greatest threat against you and me individually and humans as a species is the wrath of God. The wrath of God. The sin that we commit against God, that is the greatest threat we have. Because God is holy. God is righteous. God is a good God. If he were an evil God, he would overlook sin. He would overlook evil. He would say, that's fine. And he would allow evil to flourish. But he's not an evil God. He's a good God. He's righteous. He's holy. And he will not let sin go unpunished. Now that's a problem for you and for me. Because we're sinners. And we justly deserve the wrath of God. Now you might think, well, God's anger, just like it says here. God, you were angry with me. That must be, that must be a poetic device. That doesn't really mean God is actually angry with me. That, that must mean something else. Well, the, the Bible shows us again and again God's attitude towards sin, God's wrath towards sin. Do you remember Noah? Worldwide flood destroying all living things except for that which was on a boat. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? This, this city that was just completely filled with sin, destroyed by God's wrath. And even in the New Testament, 
We see God's wrath show up in many different ways. And definitely one of the major ones is showing that there's hell. A hell, a place where people go who are sinners and have not been saved. The greatest threat facing you and facing me is our sin and God's wrath against us. It's not technological. It's not a nuclear explosion. It's God's wrath. Now, you might think, and I don't blame you in the society we live in, but you might think, how, how can that be true? How can God be a wrathful God? How can God be an angry God? And my question to you would be, how could he not be? Here's, here's why. Just imagine for a second that you, uh, you're marrying someone. You marry this person, you love them, and you give everything to this person. You give them everything, everything. You serve them perfectly. You serve their needs. You give them all that they need. You love them completely. And you do that faithfully for years and years and years and years and years and years and years. And you're decades into your marriage. And you discover at some point, you discover this, that that whole time, the person you were with, that you were faithful to, was unfaithful to you. And you know what else? That person was unfaithful to you with someone who abuses them, with someone who doesn't take care of them, with someone who doesn't really love them. And that spouse ran off with that person. I'd say, if you loved that person, truly deeply loved them, you would be angry. Now, imagine God. God who has given us everything, given us creation, given us our next breath, gives us all things, and even supplies us with salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. He gives us everything, even the hope of eternal life, with pleasures forevermore at God's right hand. How mad should God be? How angry should he be at our sin when we go after small, insignificant, temporary pleasures instead of his glory? God is angry with us because of sin. Now, you might think again, hey, hey, I, th this, doesn't, this doesn't really make sense because, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not supposed to get angry. How come God is allowed to be angry? The Bible tells us, in our anger, do not sin. Now, how, uh, how does that work? Well, when we are angry, we tend to overreact and hurt other people based on our anger. And people sin against us, but that's just a finite sin. We're just finite people. And so our anger often leads us into sin. But when we sin against God in his ultimate holiness, in his perfect righteousness, we have committed an infinite affront to God and his holiness. And so God's anger is always, always justified. Ours isn't. His is. We need to know this. We need to know that God's anger against us is real and that hell is a real place. We need to know that our sin deserves hell and that's, and that's where we're going if we are not saved. Take a look at what it says. Take a look at what it says here. I will praise you, Lord, although you were angry with me, and yes, God was angry with me. Take a look at what happened. Your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. So how does God go from a God of anger towards me to a God of comfort towards me? How does that happen? Well, the answer is that this is the day after the Messiah has done his work. The reason why we can celebrate and know that God is a God of comfort 
towards us and not a God of anger towards us is because of what Christ did on the cross. He satisfied God's anger. He did what we could not do. He lived a righteous life, a perfectly righteous life, so that our sin could be forgiven. We can be saved because of Christ's work on the cross. And the cross is the place where God's holiness, his righteousness, his justice, and his perfect love meet. Do you want to know how much God loves you? He sent his son, his perfect son, to the cross to die for your sake. That's how much he loves you. And do you know how much God hates sin? He sent his son to the cross to die in your place, to take care of the punishment for sin. God did not compromise his love to be fully just, and God did not compromise his justice to be fully loving. He did both perfectly on the cross. And that's how God becomes a God of anger towards us into a God of comfort towards us. He has given us his son. It's a wonderful, wonderful truth. And if we don't know, if we don't know that our sin deserves hell, what are we being saved from? Who are we being saved towards? It is God who gives us a way that our sin can be forgiven through Christ on the cross. God himself is my salvation. Look at what it says next. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. We can now not be afraid. In a world, in a universe, in a reality where God's wrath is against those who sin, we cannot be afraid. And here's another question I have to ask each and every one of us. Why are you not afraid? If this universe does in fact have a God, and it does, whose righteous wrath is against you for your sin, why are you not afraid? Because most of you, I don't think, woke up this morning being really afraid of that, about that. So why are you not afraid? Why does that not scare you? And here's a few reasons why you might say that you're not afraid. One is you might think that you're basically a good person, right? You're basically good. And so if there is a God, I'm good enough that whatever moral standard he has, I'll surpass that. Here's why I know that's not the case. Here's why I know that's not true. You won't pass God's moral standard. You want to know why? You won't pass your own moral standard. You won't. If you had a tape recorder strapped around your neck for your whole life, and every time you made a judgment on someone else, it clicked on and it recorded what you said, and at the end of your life, you heard that back, and that was what was used to judge you, each and every one of us in here would fail. We would each and every one of us fail based on our own judgments. There's no way, there's no way that we would pass God's moral test. Because, by the way, God demands complete, perfect, uh, complete perfection, complete sinlessness, the sinlessness that we can only get through faith in Christ. Now, you might say, okay, that's not the reason why I'm not afraid, because, uh, you know, I know I'm, I'm not perfectly moral. I'm not afraid because I know God wouldn't send anyone to hell. I know that God's not really wrathful. Here's a question I have for you. Does your God, the, the God that you believe in, agree with you on every point? Because if he does... If that God that you believe in agrees with you about every issue, he's not the true God. The true God will challenge you. The true God will change you. The true God will change your perspective. The true God will teach you. If you just believe in a God who agrees with you on every point, you're just believing in a God you made up. 
a God that puts you in the driver's seat. The God of the Bible will change us, challenge us, and we're taught here in the Bible again and again that God's righteous wrath is against us. We need a Savior. We need Christ. That's the only way we can get out from underneath the wrath, the tremendous wrath of God. Now, that's the source of salvation. The source of salvation is Christ himself. He himself is our salvation. But now, what is the result of salvation? What should happen to a person once they are saved? And that's what we're going to see later, uh, next in this, in this passage here. It says this, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day you will say, Give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. For those of us in here who know that we were hellbound and Christ has saved us, the truly saved will truly celebrate. We can have joy because we are saved. At one point we were hellbound. Now we're heavenward. At one point we were spiritual orphans. And now we are children of God. At one point we were going to go through torment under God's wrath. And now we are going to see pleasures forevermore in heaven. At one point we were sinners and now we are saved. At one point we were trapped and now we are set free. For those who are saved, we truly celebrate. It's kind of like this. I just want to illustrate this in a few ways. Imagine you're on a, on a beach. It's just a wide open beach. Sand that way, sand that way, and just an ocean before you. And you look at the end of that ocean, you see at the horizon, and you see on that horizon a little tiny wave. And as that wave gets closer and closer and closer, you realize that's not a tiny wave. That thing is kilometers high. It is a wall of water. And it's coming for you. And there's no escape. There's no going over it. There's no going that way, that way, or that way. We're trapped. Now imagine, imagine as that thing comes closer and closer and you just know your doom is coming. Imagine, just at the right time, the ground underneath you splits open and you jump back and the ground underneath you swallows that entire tidal wave, swallows all of that water so that not even your feet get wet. That's what Christ did on the cross. He took every single ounce of God's wrath upon himself. The wrath that was coming against us, Christ took it all. You know, we, we hear again and again something like this. The God of the Old Testament is the angry God. The God of the New Testament is a loving God. But they're both equally the same God. They're both loving and they're both just. The cross is the place of God's ultimate wrath. His wrath is there. Now, there are places in the Bible where we see God's wrath, but they've got nothing on the cross. Noah's flood, nothing on the cross. Sodom and Gomorrah, nothing on the cross. Why? Because when Jesus was on that tree, he was taking the wrath of God from all time for all of your sins, past, present, and future, and all of everyone's sins, past, present, and future. Jesus Christ was receiving the wrath that you and I deserve all at once. It was agony beyond belief, just like we sang earlier in, in the songs that we were singing. It was agony beyond belief, and Christ did it for our sakes. Look at what it says. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. That's just a beautiful, poetic way of saying that we were desperate 
for God. We were desperate for salvation. We had no other way to get there, and it was provided for us. You can imagine going through a wilderness, going through a desert, and you come upon a well, and that well is bubbling over with clean, cool, fresh, infinite water. And next to that well is a bucket, and that bucket says, this is for you, Tyler. Look at that name tag. This is for you, whoever you are. God has given us salvation, and the truly saved will truly celebrate. And now, uh, I know many of us struggle with this, especially uh, here at Richview Church. We're a Baptist church, and I know we got our Baptist leanings. Um, and I know Baptists are really good at having internal joy. I know that. We got internal joy down pat. We got joy through trials. We got joy through the good times, through the bad times. We got that. Okay, I, I don't doubt it for a sec. We could use a little work on some external joy, though, right? We could use a little work, right? We could. And, and you know what's so wonderful when we're singing together this morning, and I'm looking around sometimes, and I'm seeing the faces of people who are delighting in God, and it just, it warms me, and it gives me more delight in God. Hey, when we have joy in the fact that we are saved, it shows up. It shows up in our faces. It shows up in our amens. It shows up in our hallelujahs. It shows up in our singing. The truly saved truly celebrate. Maybe we need to work on that a little bit. I'm not saying nothing. I'm just saying. <laughs> the truly saved truly celebrate. We've been saved. God has given us all good gifts. If we believe in him, if we trust in him, we are transported from a city of darkness into the city of God. We can celebrate the salvation that God has given to us. And by the way, as we celebrate in God and his salvation, we delight in him, we give him praise, we proclaim his name, just like the passage says here. And that day you will say, give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name. When we are doing that, when we delight in God, God is worshiped. So here's the pathway so far. We deserve hell. God saves us by his grace. We get to celebrate the fact that we're saved, and he's worshipped. Wow. <laughs> he gives us good gifts. He gives us salvation, and he's worshipped for it. It's an incredible, incredible thing. We need to know this God, the truly saved, truly celebrate. That is the result of salvation. But I want to close uh, with this last point. What's the purpose of salvation? What's the purpose? Why does God save us? Why does he do it? Why is, he, why is he good to us? And we're about to see why in the next passage here. This is what it says, verse 4. And that day you will say, give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done, and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion. For great is the Holy One of Israel among you. You see it? You see why we're saved? We're saved to proclaim and sing the wonder of God to the world, to the nations. The nations are there, and we are saved so that we can share the delight of knowing God to the nations, among the nations, among the world. And I've got two things to say about the nations today. It's wonderful. One is, we've got technology to reach the nations that we could never reach before. And I'm not just talking about the internet. I'm talking about, you know, helicopters and things like this. Like, the church can access places we could never go before with the gospel. But you know what's even, you know what's just as good? And this is more appropriate for the context here in Etobicoke. The nations are coming next door. The nations are next door in Etobicoke. They're coming here. 
You can just knock on your door and the nations are there. They're, they're here. They're coming. Isn't that incredible? We are saved so that we can let the nations know and the nations are here. It's wonderful. It's an amazing thing. It's incredible. And we can take advantage of that. This passage shows us two ways that we can celebrate and proclaim the uh, nature of God to the nations. And the first one is we use our words. We proclaim, we make known, we proclaim, and we say the things about God. We have conversations with people. We say, here's a good, sometimes we don't know when to have this conversation with people when you meet someone new. And I've got a little strategy for you. I don't know if you'll use this, but here's something that'll work. Let's say you meet someone and you really want to share the gospel with them. You know what's a good way to do it? Hey, let's have coffee. You tell me what makes you tick. I'll tell you what makes me tick. And we'll have a conversation. Isn't that great? They get to share what makes them tick, whatever it is that gets their life going, whatever it is that they're living for, whatever their purpose is. And then you get to say, you know what mine is? Mine is my faith. My faith in Christ. You know, I was lost without him. Now I'm saved. And he's changed my life. Isn't that great? I mean, we can have those conversations with people. We can have spiritual conversations with people. And all we got to do is really knock on the door and say hi. And there are so many ways that we can do that here at Richview as well. And I'm just going to plug a few. We're going to do an alpha course uh, later on in, in the middle of September after the party in the parking lot. Uh, and we need table leaders who are willing to have conversations with people about Jesus. That's what those leaders are there for. Uh, we want to have an open discussion with people who don't know Jesus or her, who, who kind of know him but are still trying to figure it out. You can be involved in that. I don't have a sign-up uh, yet, but I want you to think about that. Maybe you should be involved in Alpha. But here's some other ways as well. Did you know that our kids' club and our youth ministries, they're all in need of people? They are. They're all in need of people. People are coming in, and we don't have, it seems, uh, it seems to us right now, enough people. And I'm not talking about specifically gifted people. I'm not talking about people who are extremely godly or anything like that. I'm talking about willing people. People who are willing to have conversations with, other ki with kids and to help Johnny and Joanne in their ministries. Would you consider that? Would you just think about that? How are you individually proclaiming the good news about Jesus to the people around you, to the nations, to the people next door, and to the people who come to this church? There's another way that we can proclaim the goodness of God. Here it is. It says we sing. We give praise to the Lord. We sing to the Lord. We shout aloud and sing for joy. We sing. We delight in him. This is, can be through the arts. This can be through our emotions. But primarily, it is when the believers gather and we sing and delight in God. And I love it when people invite people to church because not only do they get to hear the message, but they get to look around and see that all of these people are delighting in God. And they, and they look around and they see all these people, God means something to them. God is real to these people. And then it opens the door to all sorts of conversations and even them thinking, perhaps, perhaps me, perhaps I believe in God as well. That's how we proclaim to the nations. We proclaim through our words and we proclaim through our song. We need the nations to come here. And one of the steps, one of the tools that we are putting into practice to do this is, well, we're putting on a party in the parking lot. Um, the party in the parking lot, maybe you missed when we pitched this, but I'm just going to pitch it again. It's, it's a party in the parking lot, and we're doing all of these wonderful things that you see listed there. And so we're inviting the neighborhood. In fact, we have uh, 1,100 postcards going out to the houses nearby uh, to advertise for us. But I don't think anyone's coming based on just a postcard. I think people might come if they get a postcard and they're invited. 
if someone says, hey, did you hear about the party in the parking lot? I hope you come. In fact, we have uh, a number. Uh, I think we had 500 before. I'm not sure where, all them, where many of them went, but there's a huge number of postcards out at the info center. And I'm hoping you'll pick up a stack, and especially if you live in the apartments nearby. We, we've got the houses covered, but if you live in an apartment nearby, just get a stack of those and just ha hand them out, have conversations with people, invite them to the party in the parking lot. We want people, this is the point. Now, par parties don't save people. This is the point. We're hoping that maybe years from now, maybe months from now, people will say, you know, I'm getting, say, I'm getting baptized today, I believe in Christ today, and the first contact that I had with Richview Church was the party in the parking lot. That's the point. We want to connect with people. We want the neighborhood to know that we love them. We want the neighborhood to know that we're here. This is a party that we want to put on because we love them, and we want them to be part of our community. So would you consider, if you are not involved already, would you consider signing up? There is a sign up at the info center. We still need some people to do some various things. So I'm hoping that all of us can band together, can rally around this party for the purpose of sharing the gospel with the nations, who, by the way, are next door. I put it this way just to summarize today's talk. You are saved to put God's glory on display. That's why you're saved. Salvation was never meant to end with you. That's not where God ends. That's not where God's purpose in your life ends. You are saved so that you can put God's glory on display through your words, through your affections, through your delight, through your singing, through your actions, through your behavior, through your character. We are meant to put God's glory on display, to magnify his glory among all nations. And the question I have for each and every one of us is this. How are you doing it? How are you doing it? If you're saved, if you know that you've been saved from the wrath of God by Jesus Christ on the cross, if you know that you've been saved from the sins of your past, how are you putting his glory on display?